there's a parable that dates from the first century, originates in India. It was turned into a poem in the 19th century, and I want to read you that poem because I think it helps kind of launch us into this conversation today. It goes like this. It was six men of Hindustan to learning much inclined who went to see an elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp to me tis mighty clear. The wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. The marvel of an elephant, or the, tis clear enough, the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most, deny the fact who can, the marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Hindustan dis disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So often theological wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. We'll come back to that in a minute. For now, let's pray. God, thank You for this morning, for the opportunity to worship You, to gather together, to love one another, God, to sing to You, to hear from Your Word, to make much of You to be in community together. I pray, oh God, that everyone who came in this door today would know that they are valued in your eyes, that they would know everybody is somebody here. Everybody is somebody that can contribute to the kingdom of God. Everybody is somebody who can serve. Everybody is somebody who can find communion. Everybody is somebody here. The baby brother. So, God, each of these valued people in your eyes, made in your image, that you love unconditionally and unrelentingly, we now submit ourselves to the authority of your word in the name of Christ, the people of God, together with enthusiasm, said, amen. A couple of weeks ago, we endeavored to answer a very simple question as we're beginning to conclude our three-year study in the gospel of John, and the question from John chapter 18 and 19 was simply this, what happened? Do you remember this? And when we talk about this, what happened? John chapter 18 and 19, we took the facts of what happened, and what we determined was that Jesus was betrayed by Judas when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane into the hands of the Roman soldiers and the religious guards. They took him before the religious leaders first. He went back and forth between 
um, between Annas and Caiaphas. Then they shipped him off to a mock government trial. They essentially lynched him between Pilate and Herod. Eventually, he was sentenced to death for crimes he did not commit. Completely illegal trial, complete lynching of Jesus of Nazareth. They crowned him with thorns, beat him, flogged him, made him carry his own cross. He was crucified on Golgotha just outside of Jerusalem between two thieves, buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea on April 3rd, 33 AD, 3 p.m., 1,986 years ago and counting. That's what happened. That's, that's history. That's the Bible. That's all that stuff put together in science determining what it is that happened. And the second question that we endeavored to answer, that was last week, is why did it happen? Why did it happen? Like, what were the events and circumstances? I mean, it's got to be a pretty unique set of circumstances that come together where a man is killed for crimes he didn't commit. Like, this, this, what really happened and why? Why did it happen? And I think the poem is instructive here because if you ask each individual that was very, very close to Jesus and close to this situation, why did it happen, you might hear a different answer. Peter why did it happen? Peter's answer would be, because I denied him, if I would have spoke up. Pharisees, why did this happen? Because our jealousy of Jesus' righteousness got the best of us. That's why it happened. Romans, why did it happen? Well, we had a lust for power, and it seemed as though Jesus was going to rise to power, overthrow the Roman Empire, and we wanted to squash it. That's why it happened. Judas, why did it happen? It happened because I betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. That's why it happened. And we took a look from their perspective last week, and we learned a little bit how emotions make a great passenger, but they don't make a great driver. Because when you allow emotions to drive your life, they drive you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. But I want to ask this question maybe a little bit differently this week. It's the exact same question. Why did it happen? But instead of answering from the perspective of Peter, Judas, Romans, Pharisees, whatever, we're we're going to answer, now check this out, this is critical, from God's perspective. If you were to ask God, God, why? It's, it seems like we maybe could have figured this out a different way. And if you're thinking that, you're in good company because Jesus prayed the exact same thing, did he not? If there's any other way. And it seems that we would pray the same thing. Couldn't there have been another way? Like, I got some ideas. And God says, no, this happened for a reason. It happens on purpose. And I want to tell you why. Why did it happen from God's perspective? And in order to answer that question, what we're going to do is use our grounding, our foundation, and, and that grounding is going to be John 18 and 19, what happened, the facts of what happened. And we're going to pull in the rest of the Scripture to help inform it. And here's why. Here's why the rest of the Scripture, rest of the New Testament in particular, is critical in this process. Look up here on the screen. Let's say that this line represents from left to right the trajectory of the early church, way back here being the crucifixion and way over here being the end of the first century. Here's kind of what happened in the early church. The first thing that happened is that Jesus was crucified, April 3rd, 33 AD, 3 p.m., 1,986 years ago. Second thing that happened was that he resurrected and ascended into heaven. And down the road, what would happen is some of his friends and some of his close followers and people who did a lot of research, four in particular, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would write down what happened. They called those books the Gospels. That means 
the good news about Jesus. And it's actually a proper term because it's the genre of literature that they're writing, the Gospels. And, and here's what we know about this, this that, that the Gospels are really the what. N- not completely, there is some why in there, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and their biographies of the life of Jesus tell us what happened. Again, there are some things that, that helps us understand why it happened from God's perspective, but by and large, these are just the observations they made. We were on a hillside in Galilee and this happened. We were on a lake and the storm came and this happened. We were up on a hill with him, and all of a sudden, you know, it was like we could see some glory of some, I don't know, and they just tell us what happened. And that's exactly what they did after Jesus ascended into heaven. They began going around the city of Jerusalem and eventually all over the modern world and just telling people what happened. Philip, Nathaniel, Andrew, Peter, James, John just telling people what happened. And what happened was that Jesus was crucified and resurrected and subsequent and ascended into heaven and subsequently consequently gospel communities began to rise up all over the modern world. I'm calling gospel communities what I mean by that is communities of people who were gathering together on a regular basis to make much of Jesus and talk about what happened. Check this out. You're a gospel community right now. Just 2,000 years later, right? It's a group of people that gather together, talk about what happened, worship Jesus, encourage one another. That's what we're doing. And that's what was happening even in the early church in the first century. But within those gospel communities, they did not yet have written record of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They would eventually get those. And what would happen is, in those early gospel communities, those early churches, things would kind of start to go off the rails just a little bit in a couple of different areas. They'd begin to go a little haywire. They'd begin to get a little askew. And the apostles who kind of planted those early communities of people felt uh, kind of responsible to write to them and say, hey, get back kind of on the narrow path here. So, like this, for example, okay, the church in Corinth, right, gospel community, all these believers who are together say, yes, even though we don't even have a written record in front of us, we believe what you've told us. A lot of them were there, actually, and saw Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. We believe you, and our lives are transformed because of it. And then something happened in the church in Corinth, and the next thing you know, they're celebrating communion, and people are getting hammered, schlossed, drunk during communion, we have juice here, not wine. Not necessarily for that reason, but please don't ever like bring your own because we don't want that, okay? We don't want, oh, I don't need the juice this morning. I've got a flask in my back. That's not what, okay. But that's essentially what was happening at the church in Corinth. And so Paul wrote these letters to the church in Corinth like, hey, get back on the rails. This is not living in light of the resurrection. You need to change your behavior. Or the church at Galatia, they, they were actually... Um, kind of reverting to these old Jewish laws of sacrifice and circumcision and dietary restrictions. And Paul writes that church. He says, you're no longer living under law. You're living under grace. So the circumcision thing doesn't have to happen. Aren't you glad? Because imagine if I got up here this morning, I was like, hey, everybody, uh, for the next 40 minutes, I'm just going to just tell you that everyone needs to be circumcised. Like there'll be some in the room that go, what time are the services at People's Church? Because I am leaving, right? 
So Paul, he doesn't very say anything. He writes to the church in Galatia. He says, look, this is not okay. This is not good. You need to get back to it. And what he's telling them is, here are the implications about the gospel. So what happened is within these gospel communities, those questions, comments, concerns, and issues began to arise. And what the apostles did was they wrote to those churches and they said, in light of the resurrection and in light of the cross, live this way. In other words, they're telling them why it happened. Not what happened, but why. Why is it important? Why is it relevant in God's eyes? And now, as a result, we actually have the New Testament. That's what the New Testament is, a collection of all those letters and a collection of the written records of the Gospels. That's what we have. And they tell us why it happened. So, so, so stick with me here. What that means for us today is that the Gospels are the what and the epistles are the why. Are you with me? Like, this is not entirely true. It's not that the Gospels don't delve into the why. It's not that the epistles or the book of Acts don't delve into the what. But if you want to kind of separate them, the Gospels tell us what happened, and the epistles, the letters to the churches, tell us why it happened from God's perspective. These are the facts, and these are the theological implications. So what that means is, if we read John 18 and 19, and we go, okay, why did this happen from God's perspective? We're going to have to pull in those epistles to help us understand the letters to the early churches to help us understand why exactly it happened. And here is why it happened from God's perspective in a really small nutshell, right? If you're taking notes, jot this down because this is critical. It's the only thing I want you to hear today. Ready? Not the only thing. There's other stuff, but this is the most important. This is the one thing. Ready? The tomb held more than just Jesus. Yes, Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. Yes, there were likely other bodies within that tomb. You may have heard of the catacombs where there's multiple people buried in a cave or something hewn out of a rock, which is what Jesus was buried in. But that day, 1,986 years ago, death was buried with him and still is there. Fear was buried with him and still is there. Shame was buried with him and still is there. Legalism was buried with him and still is there. Hopelessness was buried with him and still is there. Those things died with the death of Christ. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, that death died with the death of Christ. But there was so much more that God took care of in the death of his son, buried it in the tomb of a rich man, metaphorically speaking, and it still is buried there to this day. The tomb held more than just the Jesus. So that begs the question for us this morning, what is it that died with the death of Christ? What are those things that died with the death of Christ? What are the things that are buried and dead that I don't have to concern myself with, I don't have to think about? They are just gone and dealt with and done. And this is the why from God's perspective. So let's start with the first one, the very first one. What died with the death of Christ? One, for those in Christ, God's wrath died with Christ. There's a caveat there, for those in Christ, God's wrath died with Christ. God's wrath was taken care of on the cross 2,000 years ago. Now, I want to pick this apart just a little bit so everybody understands exactly what I'm saying and we don't misunderstand. And so the first question that, that, that a lot of people ask, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wrath, that's like anger, right? That's like mad. Like God's mad? 
God has wrath? Yeah, he does. Romans chapter 1. Watch what Paul says. He says, for the wrath of God. There it is. <laughs> right? We just stop there. For the wrath of God, why is he mad? Is revealed against heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress, suppress the truth. God is angry at ungodliness and unrighteousness, and rightfully so. So let's just boil this down into like 21st century language. Let's just put it this way, that God is ticked at sin. God is ticked at sin. That's what it comes down to. Now look, I'm not trying to make light of that or like add some levity or something or make it feel lighter than it is. God is rightfully, justifiably angry at ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now watch this. I have people all the time ask me, well, why? And they even almost get angry or, or you know, really discombobulated and confused. Like, God angry at sin? Like, that's ridiculous. Like, he's God. Isn't he supposed to be gracious? Isn't he supposed to be loving? Like, why would he be angry at sin? He needs to stop being angry at sin. Can I clue you in on something? It is completely ridiculous to expect something of God that you cannot fulfill yourself. And you can't. Just stop being angry at sin. You know that? You're ticked at sin just as much as, well, not just as much. You're ticked at sin like God is ticked at sin. Can I prove it to you? Watch, I'll prove it to you. In my home state of Arizona, a woman just gave birth at the end of last year. That woman had been in a vegetative state, a comatose state for eight years, and she just gave birth at the end of last year. Normal gestational period of a human female is what? 40 weeks, give or take. She had been vegetative for nine years. Are you doing the math here? She didn't have a nine-year gestational period. She was assaulted while she was in a comatose vegetative state, completely vulnerable. And as a result of that assault, she got pregnant, carried the baby to term, and they did a cesarean section, and the baby lived. Okay, first of all, how many of you just got the ickies? Ugh. Right? Second, how many of you felt a little twinge of anger towards dude that did it? Just a little one? You think her family felt a little bit of anger toward that sin? What do you think? Yes or no? Probably a little bit. Would you tell them, you know what? It doesn't make sense that you'd be angry. You need to be gracious. Would you tell them that? I'd like to see you try. See, we're all angry at sin. We're all angry at the brokenness we see in the world. We're all angry at injustice. It's just that your threshold for tolerance is higher than God's. That's the only difference. That's the only difference. You, far, you excuse sin far easier because you know you are a sinner. And you need an excuse too. But for stuff like that, it's like, well, I would never do that, so I'm angry at that. Everybody knows that's okay to be angry at that. It's okay to be angry at abusers. It's okay to be angry at uh, not uh, uh, people like Hitler and others. Like you know, it's okay to be angry at that stuff. But you know, listen. You know, if you're in a hurry at the grocery store and you don't have children or children with you, it's cool to park in one of those expecting mom spots. That's okay. That sin is okay. But taking care, you know, taking advantage of somebody in a comatose state and impregnating them, that's not okay. I'm angry at that. Can I just track back over here to the parking in my spot? I was at the grocery store with, with Kanan and Kaya a couple weeks ago. Kanan's eight months old, Kaya's four. 
and we pull into the grocery store, and I look in one of those expecting mom spots. You know those expecting mom spots? And they have the little, like, uh, uh, baby carriage, bassinet thing, paint on, reserved for expecting and new moms, right? Because we value the new moms, and we don't want you to have to park in Scarborough, right, to get to the grocery store in Aurora. Like, we don't want that, so here's the spot. And I look in this spot, and there's a Corvette in that spot. Okay, first of all, individual who's driving that vehicle is not seven months pregnant. I can almost guarantee you that. Second, there is no car seat in the back of that Corvette. You know how I know? Because there's no back seat in that Corvette, right? So I get angry. Like, I'm justifiably, rightfully angry. Stop parking in my spot. Apparently, it's not my spot anyway because I've never been an expecting or new mom. Can we just change the language there? Sorry, Kaya, we got to walk because I'm not an expecting mom. That's lame. I'm a dad, right? Stop parking in my spot. Point is that when, when, those, when that threshold compared to God's, right, he, our threshold for tolerance is high because we need an excuse for ourselves. God's threshold of tolerance is very, very low because he needs no excuse and he sees the implications Parking in that spot, Corvette man, is just not just about you need to run in and grab flowers for your wife or something like that. It's about disrespect to another human being. It's about saying my time is more important than somebody else's. There's a lot of stuff happening there, and he needs Jesus is what it comes down to. That's beside the point, beside the point. The issue is that God is ticked at sin, and you and I are ticked at sin too, and this is right and justified. It's a good thing. It propels us to do something about the injustice in the world. And people say this all the time too, okay, okay God's wrathful, God's ticked, I get it. Can't He just forgive and forget? Can't He just forgive, just forgive and forget? So, so saying to God, God, just get unticked, that's absurd. That's absurd. And this is, is the nicest word I can think of. It really is. I can't, you would never say to the woman who is impregnated in a vegetative state to their family, could you just get unticked? Just forgive and forget. So how would you say that to God? But see, God made a way for him to satisfy his rightful, justifiable anger towards sin. This is what Paul says in one of the epistles. Now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He's talking about Jesus here. We saw the righteousness of God in the law. Now we saw the righteousness of God embodied in Jesus. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, he's saying, look back in the New Testament. They're all talking about Jesus coming, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and all who, what? Believe. So for those who are in Christ now, God has made a way. And Paul says there is now no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all stand before God as sinners, as objects of His justified wrath, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, say this word with me, propitiation. Ding, 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 ding. We saw it last week, didn't we? How many of you saw it last week? Good. Okay, some of you weren't here. That's fine. We're going to review. A propitiation is this, an action meant to regain someone's favor or make up for something that you did wrong. So God put forward His Son as a propitiation so that 
he didn't have to ignore his wrath. Rather, he could pour out his justified wrath on his son. His son accept that wrath on your behalf and on mine so that he is no longer angry with those who are in Christ. In other words, God's wrath is dead because he buried it with Christ. If you are in Christ, it is still in the tomb. I play soccer <clears throat> on Tuesday night uh, in a co-ed league. And some of you might giggle at that a little bit. I would invite you to come out and play against some of the girls I play against. They are nasty people. I mean, they need to be here on Easter. Boy, I tell you what, this is the grace of God. Man, oh man, they're worse than the guys. Like I got, this is a couple weeks ago, this girl, I, I kind of, 50-50 ball, like, you know, maybe I could get it, maybe she'd get it. And I'm kind of going in easy on this girl because I don't want to, you know, kill her or whatever. And she comes in, hits me with her shoulder and goes like this, I kid you not, Whoa! she throws a forearm shiver at me. And what do you do as a guy? Like, I can't punch her, you know? Like, that's kind of frowned upon. I don't know if you knew that. I'm like, I'm like, what was that? And she goes like this. I'm not kidding. She goes like this. What? <laughs> you know, I'm just, excuse me, miss. You know, like, I don't know what else to do here, right? So, last week or two weeks ago at our game, we have this girl on our team. She's a great player, fantastic player. She's a physician. And, and, uh, and fun to be around, and she, wear, she weighs about 90 pounds, and that's like wet and wearing boots, right? She is a little gal, and this other dude on the team, a bigger guy, goes in hard on a tackle and fouls her and puts her on her rear end, like hard, and gets called for the foul, and then the referee blew the whistle for the foul. You can almost see him, like, not just calling the foul, but also expressing his displeasure, like, <laughs> Like, hey, dude, it's co-ed in Newmarket on Tuesday nights. It's not the World Cup here. Relax, right? So then the girl on our team says, hey, dude, like, ease up. Like, this is not, you know, this is not Copa Mundial here, right? This is not the Champions League. Step back. And this dude has the audacity. I'm not kidding. goes, it was all ball. I'm like, hey, 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 you foul somebody. Look, that's kind of one thing. But you start talking back at this girl who's like less than half of your weight, now we got a problem. So for those of you who know sports at all, you know hockey, you know baseball, when somebody on your team gets plunked, what do you expect is going to happen? They send the enforcer out. <laughs> right? So next time I got an opportunity, I absolutely put him on his rear end. I did. Pow! Hit him hard. And then I said, uh, we're actually having services Easter Sunday at 9, 10, 30, and <laughs> noon. We'd love to have you here. And I got called for the foul. I did. The referee blew the whistle. And then he looks at me and he goes, you know, like, hey, dude, I know what you're doing. I just jog back. <laughs> So this guy gets up, we're playing for a little while longer, ball goes off in a different direction, he and I are standing side by side, we're kind of hands on our knees because we're tired, and he looks at me and he goes like this, because he knows this is not about vengeance is mine, I will repay, some of you are going to go away and like, our pastor is taking vengeance out on others. Fine, that's fine. Again, peoples, that's fine. Um, 
It's not, it's not even about that. It's not even about that. So some of you know, athletes, you know, that's how the game is played, right? People who are not on the pitch, they're not on the ice, they're not on the field, they don't know. But for people who are out there, they know. It's how the game is played. It's not about vengeance. It's just about letting somebody know, hey, that's not okay. So we're hands on our knees beside one another. This dude looks at me. Good guy, actually. Very, very good player. He looks at me and he goes, hey, you made your point. I said, thank you. <laughs> we went on a plate. Great player. And then he scored two more goals and beat us. That's beside the point. The point is... The point is, here's the point of that whole story. Ready? This gal on our team had suffered an injury. She'd been hurt. An injustice had been done to her. And she had nothing that she could do in order to make it even. She couldn't retaliate against this guy because he's more than twice her weight. She's not going to be able to do anything about that. So someone else stepped in to do something about it. Now, this analogy breaks down all sorts of places. I get it, not the least of which is I'm in the place of God here. Okay, I get that. I get that. But after the game, she looked at me. She said, thank you for doing that, right? Here's the deal. God took care of something that you could have never taken care of yourself. You could have never made it even. You could have never made it right. You could have never corrected the injustice that, that, that you had done to God and to others. Never, never. You had no opportunity to do that. But God sent his son as a propitiation in order to take care of that on your behalf, in order to accept that wrath so that you could live knowing that God's wrath was buried with Christ 2,000 years ago. He is no longer angry at those in Christ because when he looks at you, he sees Jesus and Jesus only. He is pleased with you. He loves you. This is the only thing that some of you guys needed to hear this morning. God's punishing me. I have to, I have to please him. It's just, like That's the only noise I can make. Like to, to, to tell you that is not biblical. If you are in Christ, you are his beloved in whom he is well pleased. And his wrath was buried in that tomb and has not resurrected. Number two, for those in Christ, legalism died with Christ. Legalism died with Christ. Legalism is this idea that there are things that I have to do in order to earn God's favor, in order to appease God. That's how religions are built. I've got to throw this onion into the volcano three times, and I've got to go to church. I've got to put the statue on my lawn. I've got to go to confession this many times. These are all the things that I have to do in order to earn favor with God. And when Jesus died and was buried in that tomb, legalism was buried with him and has not come out since. Here's how I know. Once again, the epistles tell us why. What was happening in Galatia was there's a group of people called the Judaizers who had come along and said, you know what, I know that there's grace, I know that there's redemption, I know that Jesus took the shame and pain and paid the penalty of sin, but there are still some things that we need to do in order to impress God, namely dietary restrictions, circumcision, all this other stuff. And Paul immediately writes this letter. Galatians was one of the earliest letters written in the church, even before some of the Gospels were written, actually written in record form. And Paul says, you guys, you guys, you're going off the rails here. I know you got a question. You're misbehaving, but you're living as if the resurrection didn't happen. You're living as if Jesus didn't take the penalty. And so he asks the Galatians a rhetorical question. He says this, let me ask you, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Simple question. Simple, it's a rhetorical question. Ah, hearing with faith. Okay, I got it. 
Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Galatians are going, okay, we get it. You know, we're not, we're not growing in Christ and Christ-likeness because we pulled ourselves up by the bootstraps and made sure we tick all the boxes. We're growing in Christ because His Spirit began a change in us and will affect that change in us and bring it about to the day of completion. Okay, Paul, we got it. Okay, thank you. Now watch this. Here's the critical piece. He moves them out of legalism into grace, and I want you to see the verse right before it. There's Galatians 2 and 3. That's the confrontation, the verse right before it. He hinges his entire argument on one thing. What does he say? Oh, foolish Galatians, Uh, you guys, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes. Read this with me. Let's just read it together. Before your very eyes that what? Jesus Christ. Don't quit on it now. I'm not going to read with you. I can't carry this whole thing, okay? So you read it. Okay, ready? What is his, his whole argument? Out of legalism into grace. His whole argument is pinned on this one thing. It was before your eyes. Read it with enthusiasm now that... So now you live under grace. So for those of you in the room thinking, oh, man, I, this is, I, I'm glad I got to church today. These are my dozen times that I go to church every year in order to impress God. Please stop living that way. That's a heavy, heavy yoke. It's a heavy yoke, and you can't handle it. For those of you in this room that are like, you know what? You know what? I, depending on how bad the sin is, I've got to distance myself from God for a while before or until he forgets about it. You know, like if, if I fool around with my girlfriend, God probably doesn't want to talk to me for at least a week or two. If I park in Lucas's spot at Longo's, man, 24 hours maybe, then I can start talking to God again. That's a legalistic mindset. And Paul comes along and he says, get out of that because legalism died with Christ. It's gone. You are his beloved son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. He wants to talk to you every moment of the day. And his discipline for you is not punitive because his wrath is dead. His discipline for you just helps you grow. Man, I just want to stop there. I got 11 minutes left. I'm going to keep going, but I just want to stop there because so many of us are just, we're living under the power of legalism thinking that we can do something to impress God. He says, I'm already impressed because Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He took it already. He paid the debt. There's nothing else you bring to the table, so just come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. I'll give you rest for your souls. It's dead and gone in the death of Christ. Now, for some of you in the room, you might be thinking, hey, 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 what, 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 like, so if legalism is dead, does that mean we can live however we want? Does that mean we can live completely licentiously? That means we can sin all we want? That means that we could have our phone out right now and watching the masters instead of paying attention in service? By the way, where's Tiger at? No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, totally kidding. No, 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 that's why Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? What? By no means. What Paul says is not just legalism, but he says, for those in Christ, the power of sin died with Christ. 
The power of sin died with Christ. Sin no longer has to reign over your mortal body. You don't have to live in that injustice anymore. Now, if anyone says, I'm without sin, he's a liar. That's what John says. But every day we're growing more and more, and the power of sin does not have to reign over you because of the death of Christ. Again, theological heavy lifting, so dial your brain in for the next 60 seconds. This is going to be a lot coming at you. Paul writes this in Romans three, he said, or Romans 6, for one who has died has been set free from sin. That makes sense, doesn't it? If you're dead, are you free from sin? Free from a lot of stuff, right? Free from your mortgage payment, I'll tell you that right now, right? Free from a lot of stuff. Sin is one of them. Got it. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Okay, good. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Got it. Makes sense. Death no longer has dominion over him. Now watch what Paul says. This is his argument. For the death he died, he died to sin. Jesus was dead to sin. We just talked about it. He was also dead to his mortgage payment if he had one, okay? He was dead to a lot of things, sin being one of them. Now watch what Paul says. This is so critical. He died that death once for all. He died as a representative. He died for you. He died for you. He died for me. He died for us all. He died that death once for all. So now watch what Paul says. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin. If you died with Christ, you died to sin too. If you died with Christ, you died to God's wrath. You died to legalism. You died to sin too. So now I can live a life empowered and renewed and walk in faith and righteousness, doing the works of the kingdom, bringing the kingdom to bear on the planet because the power of sin no longer has to reign in my body because I can submit it to the authority of Christ. Those who have died with Christ must consider ourselves dead to sin. This is all over the New Testament, this concept author of Hebrews writes this, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's one who's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 12, or 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 10. He says, no temptation has overtaken you except that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. It's funny, people always say that, well, God never gives you anything that you can't handle. Yes, he does. First of all, that's never in the Bible. What he does promise, though, is he will not allow temptation to overtake you without providing a way of escape so that you can be alive to Christ and keep sin in the tomb. Sin no longer has to reign in your mortal body because of the crucifixion of Christ. For those in Christ, the power of sin died with Christ. This is the last one. This one struck me this week. This, this, is, this, one, this one was the one that was heavy for me this week. Ready? Stick close with me. For those in Christ, chaos died in the death of Christ. This concept of chaos, of purposelessness, of lack of control, happenstance, things just completely spinning off the rails... That notion is dead and in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and will never come back again. Why? Why? All over the New Testament and the Old Testament, we're told why, and essentially it's this, that God is in complete control even in the darkest hour of humanity when they crucified the Son of God. Even then, God was in control. Here's how I know. Because after the resurrection and before the ascension, there was this moment when the disciples were on, their ro- on the road to a little town called Emmaus. And while they were traveling, they were talking about things that had just happened. 
Of course they were. They were not talking about the masters. They just saw a man risen from the dead. So that's what they were talking about, right? They're talking about Jesus. They were talking about the resurrection. And all of a sudden, a traveler begins to walk with them. Wouldn't have been abnormal because people traveled in groups back then for safety, etc. Lo and behold, this was actually the risen Jesus. They didn't recognize him for two reasons. One, it's because the last time they saw him, he was beaten beyond recognition. And two, because he was now in his glorified body. I don't want to get into the theology of that and all that. What I want to tell you is that it makes sense that they didn't recognize him. And he's listening to these guys talk about the resurrection and ask the question, why? Why? Why did it happen? Or the crucifixion, why? Why did it happen? Why did it happen? And look what Jesus says to them. He says, oh, foolish ones, remember? Had it on the head. You know, you're cute. Oh, sweet little Peter. (laughs) Let me tell you this. You're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things to enter into His glory? Look, like we've been talking about this for three years, guys, and even before that, the Old Testament has been talking about this for a couple thousand years. So much so that Jesus does this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He says, look back at the Old Testament, 39 books. Look back at them. And he goes, from the beginning, Genesis 1, look at all the places that point to a Messiah and a suffering servant. Look at every single one of them. Oh, my gosh, you guys. Like, I just want to sit down. Could you imagine having that conversation with Jesus? He could preach here on a Sunday morning if he wanted to. I'll tell you that right now. Right? Just unpacking. He's like, look, not only is, is Christ smart, but he's also preeminent and preexistent. So when he starts talking about Abraham, I could just imagine looking at his disciples going, I was there. Or Moses, yeah, I was there. And I know that all of these things point to me. They concern me. In other words, God has been in control of this thing for a very long time. This is not chaotic. It's very purposeful. So much so that in Acts chapter 3, when Peter begins to preach, he tells the crowd, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Say these two words with me. This one, definite plan and... In other words, God has known this thing from the very beginning, so much so that in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, rebelled from God, God shows up to say, well, here are the consequences. One of the things, he, one of the uh, individuals he talks to in that context is the serpent, kind of the uh, rep, uh, Satan representative, evil representative figure there. And he says that your offspring, Satan, and, and the female offspring will be at odds for a very long time until a Messiah shows up, and when the Messiah shows up, he says that he shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent will bruise the Messiah's heel, and and the Messiah will bruise the serpent's head. Listen to me. The only way you have an interaction with a snake where your heel gets bruised and his head gets bruised. Later in the scripture, it would say crushed. The only way that happens is there's a snake on the ground and you go like this, right? So here's what God is saying, even in Genesis 3. There will be a moment where the Messiah is bruised, knocked down, but not out. 
and he will crush the serpent's head. In other words, I'm taking you very back, taking you back to the very, very beginning and telling you that God has had this on his mind before the foundations of time. Can you believe that? All throughout the Old Testament, there are foreshadows and, and places where they point to the, res- or to the crucifixion of Jesus as kind of the pinnacle of human history, foreshadowing and, 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 um, and situations that, that help us understand who Jesus was and is in his ministry. One of them was the life of a man named Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, raised up in Egypt to right hand to Potiphar's house and betrayed by Potiphar's wife. And he, she said to Potiphar, he tried to sleep with me. The reality is Joseph didn't. So he was put into prison for a very long time. He began to foretell Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh got him out of prison, raised up to the right hand, and, right hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, and given his position was able to save his brothers and his family from a famine that, that took, uh, took out the entire known world at that time. And his brothers thought, no way he's going to help us, because remember guys, we sold him into slavery a ways back. He's probably not on our team anymore. And Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, look, as for you, you meant evil against me when you sold me into slavery, but God knew God knew he had a purpose and he meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. We can say the very same thing to Peter, to the Pharisees, to the Roman centurions. You meant evil against Jesus, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here's what I know is from the very beginning, God has been in complete control. He never lost control of this thing. Nothing ever slipped through his providential fingers and care. His sovereignty was still in place. And on the darkest day of human history, when all seemed lost, God still had a plan. When all seemed lost, God still had a plan. Friends, when all seems lost in your life, God still has a plan. He is still in control. He doesn't say whoops or oh no or what am I going to do or how am I going to salvage this thing. He still has a plan. You ever, you ever uh, been on the, the Pinterest and, and you look at the, like, the really pretty cakes that people make? You ever done that before? You ever seen those cupcakes that are like really, or like the, the, all the do-it-yourself stuff? You guys know what I'm talking about? If Good, because if not, I'm just going to ditch this illustration, okay? I hope you know what I'm talking about. And, and then what you do is you try to make that cake, don't you? How does it go? Not well. And we, we mess it up, and the person who's supposed to look happy has got a sideways smile. They look like they've just been in a fight with Tyson. I mean, it's just bad, right? And we think to ourselves, how am I going to salvage this thing, Right? My kid is never going to accept that this is a cake. I mean, it's got a layer of beef and onions. Like, I really messed this up. It's bad. God has never said to himself, how am I going to salvage this thing? He was always in control. He always executed his plan to perfection. He did it. And when all seemed lost, he still had a plan that he still implemented. This is why Paul, with confidence, can say that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good. Here's the last thing I want to say to you uh, this morning. I think it's critical. And if you skip two slides ahead for me uh, real quickly, the last thing I want, uh, guys in the top, can you skip two ahead? Thank you. Uh, When the world was at its worst, this is the last thing I want to say, is that God was at his best. Think about this. When Judas, when Peter, when the Pharisees, when the guards, on the darkest day of human history, God was at his best. Now, Now, here's why this matters for you. When you're at your worst, 
God is at his best in the same way. That doesn't mean we go around sinning so that God can be at his best. What it does mean, however, is that in our brokenness, we can be vulnerable. In our difficulty, we can still bring it to God. In our hurt and pain, we can still offer it to God and say, God, do something great with this. And he can. And he proved it 2,000 years ago on the darkest day of human history when humanity was at their worst. God was at his best. God came through. He can still do the same in your life. The implications for Paul, the author of most of the New Testament, are huge because he had some really difficult things happen to him. One of them he calls a thorn in his flesh. We're not sure if that was a physical thing, an emotional thing, a mental thing. We're not sure what it was, but it was crippling for Paul. He had such a difficult time. And he says to God, three, he says in his letter to the church at Corinth, he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Like, Take this thing away that it should leave me. I don't want this anymore. But he said, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When you're weak, I'm strong, God says. When you're at your worst, I'm at my best. So bring it, God says, because I can do amazing things. And I proved it that day 2,000 years ago. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you can be, too, vulnerable with God, boast in your weaknesses. You don't have to live in shame and hiding all those things about yourself you don't love. You bring them to God, and when you're at your worst, He is at His best. The reason I... um, I started with that poem for, you know, a couple reasons. One is that I actually rewrote it this week, and I, I, I'm going to read you what I rewrote. Because I pictured Peter and the Pharisees and the Roman guards and even the soul of Judas. Judas probably at this point um, had already taken his own life because of guilt and shame. So this poem is not exactly completely theologically or historically accurate, but it is a parable. I pictured them in a room together asking the question that we've been asking for the last couple of weeks, why? Why did this happen? Peter would say, because I denied him. Judas would say, because I betrayed him. Romans would say, it was because of our lust for power. And it was like each of them is holding on to an elephant. This is a rope. This is a snake. This is a wall. Each of them seeing the elephant in the room from their very narrow, very limited, almost blinded perspective. And God comes in the room and he says, do you want to know the answer to this question? Why was Jesus crucified? It's very, very simple and very, very short. It's up here on the screen. Just God did it. That's it. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God from before the foundations of the world, God has been executing this plan step at a time and preparing all of human history for that day 1,986 years ago when death died in the death of Christ. On Saturday in Jerusalem, the day after Jesus died, a few men consulted their memories to discover the reason why. And each submitted his best guess, though each unqualified. The first, whose name was Peter, began by wailing, Why? Why was my friend and Savior's life cut short, crucified? It was me, 
he confessed. He's dead for each time I denied. The second, Nicodemus and Joseph the Pharisee shouted back at Peter and each said, "Uh uh-uh, it was me. They were convinced the cross stemmed from their jealousy. A Roman soldier in the room still smelled of blood and gore was convinced that lust for power was the root cause of the war. The simple answer to our query is just one word, more. The fourth, the soul of Judas, lifted his shaky voice and argued long and passionate that the cross was his choice. Betrayal, he said, and 30 coins is the reason he's destroyed. And so these men of Jerusalem disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. And just then, a still, small voice spoke up, and each man stood in awe. Stop guessing, the voice said gently. The prophets gave the nod. Jesus was delivered up because of the grace of God. Nothing falls outside of providential care. So the cross itself was my design, the voice calmly declared. If you're looking for the reason why, it's simple. I put him there. Let's pray. God, when we see these things from your perspective, the big picture, we see that maybe what we're experiencing is not all there is. That you have a plan, that you have authority, that you are sovereign, and you demonstrated that 2,000 years ago in the crucifixion of your son. That chaos is dead, you're in control. That your wrath is buried because you are pleased with us who are in Christ. God, that, that the power of sin is dead and gone because Jesus died his death to sin and we have died with him and now live with him. God, that legalism is no longer a burden we bear, the yoke we live under, Because, Jesus, you were the embodiment of righteousness and fulfilled all the law. Jesus, give us freedom in understanding why you went to the cross. Jesus, Jesus, give us joy. Give us hope. Give us lightness of heart. Because there was far more in that tomb than just you. And you left it all behind. For our sake, for the sake of the glory of God. In Christ's name, people of God together said,